Welcome back, those of you who are following along with our study of First John. I'm Amy Clarkson, and you're listening to Zone Logos, which is Greek for living word. And today is our seventh episode, and we are going to be talking about First John chapter 4, starting with verse 7. I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert. Today's passage is all about love, and John is no stranger on the topic. In fact, much of this book has been about what it means to be a child of God and how that applies to loving each other and loving our neighbors. So he's going to reiterate that again in this passage. I'm reading from the NIV, and I'm going to just go ahead and start with verse 7, but follow along in whatever version you are comfortable with or have. Verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. In this verse, we have our command, which is, again, something we've all read multiple times in this chapter, let us love one another. But John adds something new in this one, for love comes from God. That's actually a pretty profound thought if you stop to think about that the idea of love, that love itself, the action, the emotion, all the things we associate with that idea of love is something created by God. It's from him. The ability that we can even do that and have feelings of love that compel us to action comes from God himself. There's a reason that love comes from God. And that's actually in this next verse in 8. It says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Before we talk about knowing God, not knowing God, here is the quintessential reason why love comes from God. And that's because God is love. Just pause and think about that. How do we define God? Well, God is love. Now, what John is saying is that if you've been born of God, you're his offspring, you're a child of his, and you know God, and knowing here is that Greek word genosko, which means to know through personal experience. So if you've spent time with God, you are in a relationship with God, and if God himself is love, then it makes sense that you would then know how to love others and would do that because you've been around God. And then the reverse is true as well, which is what he's saying in, in verse 8. If you don't love, then you don't know God. You haven't obviously been around him, I guess, to know that that's what he is and therefore that's what you should do. I want to pause for a moment just to talk about this idea that God himself is love. There's an author I really enjoy named Peter Collins. He has several books out. But he talks about the four ways that we think about God. And part of that's been a progression in time. But also, I think all four of these ways are current. He says that the first way that people think about God is that he is a being. Meaning he is this entity, but he's out there. He's bigger than us, but he is definable in his infinite ways. The second way that he says we think about God is that he's mystical. He's a hyper being. It just means that he is undefinable. So unlike the first way 
that might spend a lot of time trying to define all the character traits of God and kind of where he is and things like that. This second way just means, look, he's beyond my understanding. And in that, I'm not even going to spend time trying to define him. The third way really gained traction in the 1960s. I think this was a way to think about God forever and ever, but a lot of books were written in the 1960s using the term ground of being. So this other way to think of God is that he is this foundation from which all things arise. So he's the foundation, the ground of our being. But specifically, this ground of our being, this foundation, is that of love. So John is saying this here, that God is love. So one way to think about God is that as a foundation of love, that when we love others, we then encounter God. Because as we're involved in that act or that emotion, since that is God, we are actually partaking taking and participating in an encounter with God. Now, the fourth way is to think about God is God as a vent, V-E-N-T. Now, what I mean by that is it is a way to think about him calling us to greater ideals, such as love or freedom or compassion or grace, but that God is the entity that is pulling us to be better than we are. Since that was a little tangent, I'd be curious to see if one of those resonates more with you when you think about how you identify God within your mind as a thought. Personally, I can see all four of them in my own understanding. I, at times, try to define him. At times, he's undescribable. He is definitely the foundation that I exist and from which I'm also being pulled to greater things. But it's fun to see the roots of these ideas, how we conceptualize things, back in Scripture. John was already talking about all of this. So let's continue then with verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. So we know God is love. We know that love comes from God. But this is now a definition or a visual representation of what love is. My version says this is how God showed his love. Uh, King James, I know, uses the word manifest. What that word is, planero, it means to make clear or make plain or be visible. So see, John's saying he's showing us in a tangible, visible way what love is by what? Sending his only son, that word in the Greek is monogenos. Again, geno being the, from the word we get our word genetics and mono being one. So literally one, the only true offspring of God, his only son. He came into the world. Why? So that we might live through him. That word live is zeo, which comes from the word zoe, which is a way to say life. It's life with passion and wholeness and true living. I might say to you or ask you, did Christ come so that we live forever and ever? Is this talking about the afterlife? Or is it talking about that we might live today through him with true life and Zoe? Or is it actually both? He came for us today and 
tomorrow. This next part describes it more. This is love, says verse 10. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If we've been in the church, we've heard this so often that sometimes the profound nature of it gets lost in the familiarity. But let us look again at this. He loved us first. So this act was instigated by him without us. He loved us first. Loved us so much that he sent his only son to be what? An atoning sacrifice or in the King James it says a propitiation. Again that comes from the word in Greek halasmos which has to do with that mercy seat of the covenant where sacrifices were offered, where the blood was poured, and that's what Christ became for us. It was to appease the requirement of our sin. And again, pause to think this through. Did he do that because we were begging him like the Israelites and the judges and some of those Old Testament books where the Israelites cried out for help? It doesn't say that. Is it because we were such great worshipers of God? Does it say because we brought the right sacrifices to him or that we pleased him by our lives and we did all of these actions for him and that's why he finally loved us because we loved him so well? Nope, doesn't say that. So it's not our love that causes his love for us and it's not out of mercy meaning it's not us crying out for relief that he decided to offer Christ as a sacrifice and that's pretty big to think that it's actually initiated by him he loved us first no matter whether we cried out or loved him he did this for us and that is what John says is what love is. So not only is this profound from God's standpoint towards us, I think it can also be an instruction for us to others. What does that mean then to love others? Do we wait for them to be worthy of love? Do we wait for them to ask for our love? No, according to this, we do it first. We're on that crazy cycle maybe with somebody and we're like, if they would only do this, then I'll do this. Nah, that's not love. Love is that we act first. We are the ones that love first, despite what that other person is doing or deserving or asking, which comes back to what the definition of what agape love is, right? There's no conditions to it. It's offered without condition. Look at this next verse, 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This word ought in Greek is ophelio, O-P-H-E-I-L-O, and it means to be indebted. It really does mean to owe someone. If you think about it, it makes sense. If we can grasp what God has done for us and really, really sink our teeth into that, then we should feel a debt that we owe it to him to love other people, right? Verse 12 says this, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. There's really three things in this verse that happen when we love one another. Can you see what those are? Give a minute to see if three things that happen in verse 12 when we love one another. 
the two easy ones are God lives in us. So when we love one another, God dwells in us. That word live is that word minnow or minnow, and it means that God is taking up residence in us. He becomes a part of us. The second thing that happens is that his love then is made complete in us. That word complete is teleo, and that comes from the word telescope. We've probably talked about it before. That idea that a telescope, as it is extended and matures, and as the different levels move farther and farther out, you get a more complete picture. It's able to do and be what it was designed to be the further the telescope is lengthened. It's the same for us. God's love in us actually is working to reach our final stage, our full complete potential of what he has in mind. So what's the third one? That's kind of hidden in the beginning of verse 12. No one has ever seen God. In other words, when we love, we also show the world God, right? That's what he's saying. That's how we make him visible, by loving others. I'm going to read a couple verses now, verse 13 through 16. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. I feel like John is anticipating arguments here. Like, I still don't know if I can buy this. So he says in verse 13, No, we know this because we have been given his spirit. So one of the main jobs of the Holy Spirit, and we've talked about this before, is to remind us of truth and to convince us of truth and to teach us truth as well. That is what the Holy Spirit is sent to do. And then the second thing he says is, for those doubters, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son. So remember, John is one of the disciples. He's actually experienced all of this and wants to say that He's testifying, he's acknowledging that he knows that his, God sent his son and that the son was the savior of the world. He goes on to say, we have one job. So even if you're still doubting, all you have to do is this, he says in verse 15, acknowledge that Jesus is the son of God. And that word acknowledge, some different versions use the word confess, it's homologio, we've talked about this before. It's speaking together or agreeing um, with something. It's like professing, confessing, acknowledging. All of those have the same connotation. So what is it that we're supposed to acknowledge and confess and profess and agree with? That Jesus is the Son of God. That's it. And if we do that, he says God lives in us. That's the word menio again, to dwell, to take up residence within us. And here's what else is great. Not only does God live in us, it's he says that we live in God. It's this symbiotic relationship of him taking up space within us, but then us dwelling and residing in him as well. 
He's summing this up then in 16. That's how we know and rely, mind says. Some might say believe. That is a verb of the word for faith, which is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. So in other words, if we're in doubt, how do we know? How do we have faith? Well, we have the Holy Spirit. We have this ability to have seen and testify and know people that have seen and testify. And we simply acknowledge him. Then he continues with that God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In other words, if we live in love, that means to stay and live our lives and walk in the action of love, then again, we are in God and God in us. It's not a lovely statement. This might sound familiar. In verse 17, he says, in this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. It is love then that is the key for helping us be complete. Some of yours might say perfect or perfection, but this is that word that we just talked about a few verses back in 12. It's teleo, the idea of the telescope. It's a, it's a complete in terms of our potential. And it is love that helps us become that. And in, when that happens, we have confidence on the day of judgment. Why do we have confidence? because it is love that has made us Christ-like, because who Christ is, is love. And when we love, we are like Christ, and we can be confident then. Now John is going to speak in the opposite. With verse 18, he says, there is no fear in love. I'm going to stop just right there. He's just been talking about confidence on the day of judgment, and now he's talking about something that is the opposite of confidence, the opposite of boldness, and that is fear right? Now this type of fear, phobos in Greek, is panic. It's to flee. It's to withdraw because of terror. He's just said that if we love and that love makes us complete, we don't need to run away. We don't need to have fear because we're standing in confidence. That's what love does. It gives us that confidence. And this is what he does say in verse 18. He goes on to say, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Let's rephrase this. Again, we're talking about this perfect love, that complete love driving out fear. That word in the Greek is B-A-L-L-O, balo, and it means to have an intense throw. I mean, it's casting out as if you were um, fishing or something. It's a throwing with intensity. And that's what love does to fear. John makes this really interesting statement about fear having to do with punishment. Can you think of ways that fear is like punishment? Obviously, the feeling itself can feel punishing. That word for punishment is a correction, another word for that. Think about some of the thoughts that come with fear, what our brain tells us sometimes when we're in that fearful mode. Perhaps it says to us, well, you don't deserve that, or you're never going to receive that. And those statements make us afraid. Oh, we're never going to deserve that. We're never going to receive this. And that reality, though misguided, in itself would be punishment, wouldn't it? And so that's why John is linking those together. Now, he says the one who fears is not made perfect in love. I think a way to say this is that 
when we are living in fear or in panic and we're believing these things about, I don't deserve this, I'm never going to receive this, I don't, uh, et cetera, et cetera, well, then we can't really be in a process of becoming complete, right? Because it's really hard to love when you're terrified, isn't it? It's hard to go out there and act loving and have love when you are believing and experiencing all of these terrified, panic, uh, fearful thoughts. What he's not saying is that if you've ever had fear, that therefore God must not be in you. That's not what he's saying. He's talking again about living in fear, believing all of the lies um, makes it hard to love others. Let's read the conclusion here in verse 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I love how John wraps this up in a summary paragraph, and yet introduces concepts he's talked about other, work, other places in this chapter. But he's reminding us, God first loved us, and we're indebted and overwhelmed, and so we love him back. And if we say that, we love God. He's been talking for verses now about love, and some of us still don't understand what that means. And so he's reminding us. It's about loving our brother. And if you hate somebody, or remember that definition for hate is to love less. If we love our brother less than what he deserves, which is abundant love, then we are deceiving ourselves. That's what it means by he is a liar. And if we can't even love our brother who is right in front of us, how in the world are we going to love the concept of God that we can't even see? He basically is saying that's impossible. So here's the command again. If we love God, we've also got to love our brothers. Yes, this is stern. This is harsh. This is bold. But he's reminding us that this isn't his own idea. This is the command of God. Okay, that concludes chapter four. We only have one more chapter left and we'll finish that up next week. But thanks for hanging in there with the book of 1 John. He's a little bit redundant, but we must need the message. And with that, have a great week and make sure you love others well.